0: Church family, if you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36, we're going to look at verse 1 through the first verse of verse 37. Uh, Excuse me, of chapter 37. First verse of chapter 37. So chapter 36, verse 1 through chapter 37, verse 1. Title of our message today is Staying in the Game. Staying in the Game. This is the Word of God. You follow along as I read. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basmath Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basmath bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jelum, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Bazmath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholi-Bama. The daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibian, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jehosh, Jelam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruuel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Bama, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jesh, Jelam, and Korah, these are the chiefs born of Bama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibian Anna, Dishon, Ezra, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. And Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Menahat, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Ishban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezra, Bilhan. Zavon and Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Anna, Dishon, Ezra and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Eden before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Denhabah. Bella died and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died and Husham of the land of the Timonites, reigned in his place. Husham died and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city being Abeth. Hadad died and Samla of Mazrika reigned in his place. Samlah died and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died and Bahal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Bahal Hanan, the son of Akvor, died and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Paul. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs, chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By the names, the chiefs Timnah, Elva, Jeheth, Oholibama, Ella, Penan, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Church family. I do not read a passage like that because I like to hear myself say all those names. I don't read a passage like that because I think I'm good at reading those names. If there were any biblical uh, Hebrew scholars in here, um, they would quickly correct all of my pronunciations of those names. I read that passage because it's the next passage, because it is the word of God. And believe it or not, I believe that God has something to say to his people through Genesis chapter 36 the other evening, I was driving, and I turned on the radio to listen to a football game, uh, but I didn't get to listen to any of the game because it was halftime, and I had a short drive. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but as a spectator, halftime is my least favorite part of the game, especially if I'm just having to listen to it on the radio. Now, if you're there and there's a halftime show, um, that can be fun, but uh, I don't, as a spectator, I don't like halftime. It would be fine with me if halftime lasted five minutes. Okay, grab a drink of water and get back out there because I like the game. I like the action. That's what I'm there to watch. But halftime is an extremely important part of the game, not for me, the spectator, but for the coaches and the players. It provides an opportunity to opportunity to rest. It provides an opportunity to regroup. It provides an opportunity to make some corrections um, if there's some things in the game plan that aren't really going according to plan. But it also provides an opportunity for the coaches to remind the players of the big picture at the beginning of the game. The players are hyped up and are looking at the game with the big picture in mind. They know the game plan. They're united as a team. They have in their mind the end goal, the victory But after an hour, hour and a half, maybe two of playing their position and being immersed in the grind of the game, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. Those players may enter the locker room at halftime thinking about not victory, but about how their opponent is way bigger than they were expecting. They may enter the locker room thinking about how my teammates are not are, they're not performing their positions like they're supposed to. So maybe some breakdown in the unity they they, they may walk into the locker room thinking about how victory seems much Harder than they had expected, they might be questioning the game plan of their coach or questioning their own ability to outmatch their opponent on the other side of the ball, or they may be questioning whether it's even worth it to stay in the game instead of saying, put me in coach. They might be ready to say, put someone else in coach. In those moments, great coaches don't just give lots of details, uh, corrections about the the ins and outs of the game, the X's and O's, as it were. Instead, they use at least some of that halftime to lift the minds of the players out of the details and refocus them on the big picture. And say something like this. Hey, guys, I know it's hard. I know you're tired. But remember the game plan. Remember we're on this same team working together. Remember the end goal. Remember the victory. Remember that it's going to be worth it. Don't give up, guys. Let's go. Church, as we come to Genesis 36, from a spectator's standpoint, I want to kind of skip it. From a, from a spectator's standpoint, I want to kind of just skip over this passage of Scripture. It doesn't seem exciting. It it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's much to learn. And I just want to get back to the action of the story. But as a player, as a part of God's team, this passage can serve as a sort of halftime for us where we pause from the intense action that we see on either side of chapter 36. And we can have our hearts and our minds reset on some simple but important big picture truths that I believe will help us stay in the game. In Genesis chapter 36, verse 1 through 37, verse 1, I believe God is teaching us this church that being reminded of the big picture can help us press onward and following Jesus. Being reminded of the big picture, being reminded of some just big picture truth from God's word can help us press onward and following Jesus. Now, when we come to a genealogy like chapter 36. It's easy to skim over it quickly. Maybe if you are reading this in your quiet time, your Bible reading, you would kind of skim him through it and, and keep going. Um, and uh, maybe sometimes that's okay to do. But sometimes we need to stop and read and say, all right, what is God trying to teach me. Passages like this are not the most intriguing and often don't seem to have much to do with our lives. I like how one biblical scholar put it. He said this, and this, this this provides me with comfort when I read a passage like this, when somebody way smarter than me, older than me, that's been studying the Bible a lot longer than me, says something like this. He says, genealogies do not easily inspire theological reflection. Now, that's a fancy way of saying it's really hard to see how a genealogy helps us learn about God and how to honor him with our lives. Genealogies do not easily inspire theological reflection. But he goes on to say this. But in Genesis, they have a most important function. And I agree with him. Now, when we studied one of the previous genealogies in Genesis, uh, We have actually looked at other ones in Genesis um, that have come before this one. And when we studied those, um, I shared with you some of the purposes that genealogies have in Scripture. I'm not going to go back through those in detail, but I do want to remind you of some of those purposes. One, genealogies focus our attention on the correct branches of humanity's family tree as we look for the Messiah. We're going to come back to that one. Genealogies provide uh, links in the grand story of Scripture. Genealogies help move the story forward toward the promised offspring. And genealogies reveal God's sovereignty over humanity and salvation. God knows every one of those names. He knows the people behind those names. We may not know them, but friends, God knew them and knows them. I want to go back to that first purpose for a moment. Genealogies focus our attention on the correct branches of humanity's family tree as we look for the Messiah. That's exactly what Genesis chapter 36 does by giving us the genealogy of Esau. At this point in Genesis, the author is telling us he's communicating to us that Esau's family is not the correct branch of humanity's family tree on which will hang the Messiah, on which we will find, will produce the promised one. One of the literary techniques in the book of Genesis is to deal with the non-elect branch, that is the branch that doesn't lead to the Messiah, before dealing with the elect branch, that is the branch that does lead to the Messiah. There's a pattern that we see. For instance, Genesis chapter 4, we have the line of Cain. Then in Genesis chapter 5, we have the line of Seth. The Messiah, Jesus, came from the line of Seth, the one that was given second. Genesis chapter 10, we are told the genealogies of each of Noah's three sons, with the last genealogy being that of Shem. And then Shem's genealogy is repeated in chapter 11. Guess what? The Messiah came from the line of Shem, the one that was given second, not the one that was given first. In Genesis chapter 25, we are given the genealogy of the line of Ishmael before the author transitions to describe the sons of Isaac. The Messiah came from not the first Ishmael, but from the second Isaac. Now, when we get to the branches of the Isaac family tree, which are Esau and Jacob, we are given the genealogy of Esau before the text dives into the sons of Jacob. And the pattern holds true. Esau's descendants, the one that's given first, will not lead to the promised offspring. But Jacob's descendants, the one given second, will Again, the pattern is to briefly deal with the non-elect line and then dive into the details of the elect line, the one that will lead to Jesus. So chapter 36, look at the text. Chapter 36 begins this way. These are the generations of Esau. And then jump ahead to chapter 37, verse 1. These are the generations of Jacob. So just that, just the placement of Esau's descendants before Jacob's descendants reveals that the Messiah will not come from Esau, but from Jacob. Now, I know I know this may seem technical and a little bit boring, but understanding the structure and the pattern of Genesis is going to help you when you're reading this book. So that you don't get bogged down when you're saying, I'm going to read the book of Genesis and you get bogged and you say, man, why is this going on? There, there's a rhyme, a reason to the rhyme. So to speak, Genesis 36 may seem random, but it actually fits just right in the account of Genesis and helps point us in the right direction as we're looking for this promised one, this offspring, this Messiah, Jesus. But that's not all. As I said a moment ago, I think this passage provides us with some reminders that will help us press on in following Jesus. So think about this passage as halftime, as a transition out of Jacob's journey, which we spent several weeks in and into the story of Joseph and his brothers, those sons of Jacob. We want to see this as this, this halftime. And we want to be reminded of this big picture. There are three reminders that I want to share with you. And I say reminders because they're things that we've seen before. Remember, you get into halftime, you don't want to learn new things at halftime. You just want to be reminded of what you already know so that you can press on. We want to press on or we want to stay in the game as followers of Christ. Reminder number one, church, is this. God's fulfilled promises strengthen our faith in his promises yet to be fulfilled. God's fulfilled promises strengthen our faith in his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. If you say, Zach, this seems like something we've talked about before. It is. Remember, it's halftime. We're just being reminded. We're being reminded of these truths so that we stay in the game. In verses 1 through 8, we have the generations of Esau that's written in a way that focused on the land. We're told that Esau had a few wives, some grandsons. They moved out of the land of Canaan and settled in the hill country of Sierra. We're also told that the reason Esau decided to leave Jacob is because and the text says this their possessions were too great for them to dwell together the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. And then if you jump ahead to chapter 37 verse 1, we're told that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And notice one more thing verse 9 If you see that, it seems to repeat verse one. Actually, two times we're told these are the generations of Esau. And then again, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. Whereas chapter 36 verses one through eight focuses on the land of Esau, chapter 36, beginning in verse nine and going all the way through the end of the chapter, focus on the kings that come from Esau. Friends, the great possessions of these brothers The fact that Jacob stays in the promised land while Esau leaves the promised land and the history that kings descended from Esau, they may seem like very obscure details and facts, but they are all actually a part of God fulfilling his promises. God had promised blessing to Abraham and his offspring. And here we see the grandsons of Abraham possessing great wealth. God had said that Jacob was the chosen one. And here we see Esau leaving the land of promise while Jacob remained in the land of promise. And God had promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And here we see that Abraham's grandson Esau produced many kings. Those names that I just struggled to read a few moments ago. So, what we see here is in chapter 36, we have evidence that God is keeping his promises. And as we see God keeping his promises, our faith ought to be strengthened to trust that God is going to continue to keep his promises into the future. Church, I, I, I want to be very transparent with you. Sometimes I struggle with trusting God's promises that have yet to be fulfilled. I do. I love studying God's word. I love preaching God's word. But sometimes I struggle with trusting his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. I grow weary of battling against temptation and living in a broken world and sometimes even grow weary of toiling and laboring for God's kingdom. And, and these are these are very real thoughts that I have sometimes. Now, I wonder if Jesus is ever going to come back. It's not ever going to bring an end To the wickedness of this world, will I ever get to see my savior and once and for all be done with sin and the sinful world forever? Those are thoughts that, that pop into my mind from time to time, especially when things get hard. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but I do. And it's discouraging. I get down sometimes. It's hard to press on. It's hard to stay in the game of following Jesus. But one of the things that I I try to do and the Holy Spirit helps me. And it's all about his grace is in those moments when I feel that way is to take some time to think back to all the promises that God has already fulfilled. As I've studied Genesis 36, that's one of the things that God has been teaching me in this passage is that he is a promise keeping God. You say, Zach, it seems like we talk about that almost every week in Genesis. We do, but it's halftime and sometimes we get down and we need to be reminded of the big picture that God is a promise keeping God. And as I receive this gracious reminder of the big picture, it helps me want to stay in the game. It helps me want to press onward in following Jesus, because I know that his future promises will be fulfilled. Church, God's fulfilled promises strengthen our faith in his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And so I want to encourage you stay in the game. Stay in the game. Let me give you reminder number two. Reminder number two, God's plan for his people requires patient waiting from his people. God's plan for his people requires patient waiting from his people. One of the things we have seen over and over in Genesis is that God's ways and timing are not always what we would expect. As the prophet Isaiah said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. I want you to notice verse thirty one. Chapter 36, verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So Edom, which is the nation that came from Esau, had lots of kings before Israel ever had any king. Now, the reason I point this out is because one chapter earlier in chapter 35, verse 11, God had promised that kings would come not from Esau, but from Jacob. Well, that's interesting. So God promised that kings would come from Jacob, but many kings came from Esau before any king ever came from Jacob. Church, God's timing is not always our timing. God's ways are not always our ways. And we need to remember that because when it seems like God has forgotten, he hasn't. When it seems like God is silent, he is still working out his plan. It's just that his plan for his people requires patient waiting from his people. Consider Noah building the ark, waiting for many years on the floods to come. Consider Abraham promised a son waiting for many years on that promised son to be born. Consider the people of Israel who waited many, many years for the promise made to Jacob that kings would come from him to be fulfilled. But unfortunately for Israel, we know from reading ahead in the story, they got tired of patiently waiting and they demanded a king in their timing and in their way. God gave it to them and they had to suffer the consequences for it. Brothers and sisters, as we trust that God will continue to fulfill his promises, we must understand that part of the game plan for God's people is patiently waiting. And if we forget this, it will lead to discouragement in our lives. We will try to run ahead of God. We will demand from God what he is not yet ready to give us. And those desires will end up usurping God's place in our hearts, which leads to idolatry. As we see many kings coming from Jacob's brother, even though God has specifically promised Jacob that kings would come from him, we are reminded that walking by faith means waiting patiently. We wait on Christ's return. We wait on Satan to be bound and thrown into the lake of fire forever. We wait on our lowly bodies that are broken to become like Christ's heavenly body, perfect forever forever. We wait on God to wipe away every tear for our eyes. Church, we wait. We patiently wait. Remember, it's actually part of God's game plan. And so don't be surprised when God's promises aren't fulfilled as quickly as you think they should be. Don't let it lead you to doubt and discouragement. Church family. stay in the game. Let me give you the third and final reminder Church, God's promised one did not come from the nations, but he did come for the nations. God's promised one did not come from the nations, but he did come for the nations. I want to make sure you understand what I mean by the nations in this context when I use that. Throughout Scripture, the nations are the peoples other than Israel. The New Testament calls them Gentiles. Now, obviously, Israel is the nation, so when I say it... The Messiah didn't come from the nations. I'm not referring to the nation of Israel. I'm referring to all the other nations. A distinction is made in Scripture between the nations and Israel, between the Gentiles and the Jews. So when I say the promised one did not come from the nations, I mean that the promised one did not come from uh, that it came from Israel. The promised one, he came from Israel, not from the other nations, including the nation that we have here described to us. The nation coming from Esau, that is the nation of Edom. Remember the fact that the generations of Esau section comes before the generations of Jacob section, which tells us that the Messiah will not come from Esau. Edom will not be the nation that produces the promised savior. Jesus, the savior, is going to come from Jacob. Remember, whose name has been changed to Israel, producing the nation of Israel. God's promised one did not come from the nations. He came from Israel. But here's what the apostle Paul calls the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ This is what many Jews had a hard time understanding when Christ came. And in the early days of the church, the mystery of Christ is that even though God's promised one did not come from the nations, he came for the nations. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said this. The mystery is that the Gentiles, that's the nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of Christ was that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for the sins of people from every nation, not just for people from the nation of Israel from which he came. And friends, this is good news for you and for me, because most, if not all of us in this room today are not Jewish by birth. We don't belong to the nation of Israel. If you're not a Jew, then this truth that God's promised one came for all the nations means that You, too, can believe in the promised Messiah in Jesus and you can be equally saved from your sins. Just like someone who came from the Jacob branch of the family tree can believe in Jesus and be saved. Jesus came just as much for the Gentile as he did for the Jew. You say, all right. Pastor, where in the world are you getting that in Genesis chapter 36? Sounds like you're just kind of tagging on something about nations and the mission of God or something here on the end of the sermon. Well, I'm actually getting this truth starting in Genesis, but then reading ahead in Genesis 36, but then reading ahead in God's word. You see, Esau leaves the promised land. Esau is not the chosen son. Esau's descendants will not produce the promised offering, but God is not the With the nation of Edom, as we read through the Old Testament, we see the nation of Edom ends up mistreating the people of Israel. They won't let the Israelites pass through their land when the Israelites are leaving Egypt and going to the land of Canaan to the promised land. And later, when Israel is being attacked by their enemies, Edom just watches and appears to make fun of Israel. For being defeated. In fact, the book of Obadiah, if you wanted to read that book, it's pretty short. It's only one chapter long. It's pretty much devoted to a prophecy against Edom. For gloating over Israel's misfortune. And yet we have a very interesting prophecy regarding this nation that we read about in Genesis chapter 36, the nation of Edom. God says this through the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 12. This is, this is awesome. This is, where we, this is where we say only God is writing this story. Amos said this, in that day, this is God speaking through Amos, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old. He's talking about, I'm going to save my people. Talking about David, that's the nation of Israel. Note, note this, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Declares the Lord who does this church, despite the wickedness of Edom, despite the fact that Edom came from Esau, who was not the chosen son, who despised his birthright, who left the promised land and who did not produce the Messiah. Here is a prophecy that a remnant from Edom would be called by the Lord and would be saved. And not only Edom, but all the nations who are called by God unto salvation. And just in case we think we are misinterpreting that prophecy from Amos, I want, to, I want to fast forward several hundred years to a church meeting in Jerusalem not too long after Jesus came and died for sin and rose from the grave. The gospel was being preached to the Gentiles, to the nations, and people from the nations were believing in Jesus and being saved. But the Jews didn't really, they, they were like, I don't know about this. They're not our people. They're not the chosen people. How in the world can they share in the promises of God? They were having trouble wrapping their minds around this truth that the nations who didn't produce the Messiah were being saved by the Messiah and being included as part of God's eternal people. And so they called a church meeting in Jerusalem. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. You can read about it later. And after they gathered together, they heard the report from Peter and from Paul and from Barnabas that all of these Gentiles, these nations, were trusting in the Messiah that they thought came just for the Jews. James stands up. Now, James was a Jew through and through. He was also a believer in Jesus. He was a Christian. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem that was made up mostly of Jews. And so he got up, and I'm going to paraphrase. He basically said this. Yes, this is correct. The Gentiles can believe in Jesus and be saved. Jesus came for the nations, even though he didn't come from the nations. And so being a faithful Jew, he's got to back up his belief. And what does he use to back it up? The Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. And what Old Testament text do you think he chose? Amos chapter nine, verse 11 and 12. He quotes it in Acts chapter 15. He chose the prophecy about Edom, the nation that came from Esau, that we read about in Genesis chapter 36, to say that Jesus came for the nations. Now, he changes one word in there. It's kind of interesting. He actually changes the word Edom when he says it. Instead of saying that uh, a remnant of Edom would be called by the Lord to salvation, he said that a remnant of mankind would seek the Lord and be saved. Here's what that means. It means that James understood the prophecy from Amos chapter 9. He knew that when God said a remnant from Edom would be saved, God meant that's just an example of one of the nations of all the nations that are going to be saved. Interesting fact is that the word Edom and the word mankind, meaning everyone, all the nations that's found there in 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 uh, in the Hebrew, they sound almost exactly the same. Maybe God did that on purpose. Maybe he had the prophecy given to Amos in in that prophecy. He used the nation of Edom as an example, because he knew that word in the Hebrew sounded just like the word for all mankind, because he was pointing forward to the fact that this promised one who didn't come from the nations, he was actually coming, though, still for the nations. Friends, this is why I said this is a story. Only God could write. God came for the nations. You see the point of this halftime encouragement? We need, church, to be reminded of this fact that God is going to fulfill his promises. That as we wait on those promises, we're going to have to wait. Patient waiting is a part of God's game plan. And we need to be reminded that God's plan includes people from every nation hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and one day gathering around the throne of God as the redeemed bride of Christ. But church, the mission is not yet complete. In fact, Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus the king came and died for sinners and rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death. Jesus said this, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Which means, church, that as we patiently wait on God's promises to be fulfilled, we don't wait by doing nothing. We wait by getting the gospel to every nation. Listen, I long for Christ's return. I told you a few minutes ago that I get discouraged sometimes as I wonder, when is he going to come back? But the delay, church, in his return should not lead me to doubt his return but should instead remind me and it should remind you that our work is not finished. My work is not finished. The mission is not yet complete. And so instead of sitting around kicking dirt, wondering when Jesus is coming back and when God will finish what he started, I need to leverage my life for the sake of the great commission of our Lord Jesus. I need to pour myself out so that the peoples who have never heard of Jesus can hear. I need to be about my father's business, which is the salvation of people from every nation. In church, I need to stay in the game. And so do you. God's promised one did not come from the nations, but he came for the nations. But as long as there are still nations and peoples and languages that have yet to hear and believe the good news of Jesus, church, we've got to stay in the game. Brothers and sisters, it's not over. We've got to get back out on the field. It might be hard. The opponent might be fierce. Sometimes it might seem like things are not going according to the game plan. But see the big picture, team. See the big picture, church. God is at work. Jesus is being proclaimed one by one. The nations are hearing the gospel of Jesus. In God's timing, the victory that was won on the cross is being applied to hearts from every nation all around our world. So two questions. One, have you believed in Jesus the Messiah? He came for you. He came for the nations. Will you trust in His work on the cross to rescue you from your sin? Are you a part of the remnant of the nations that believed and are saved? If not, you can repent of your sin and believe and trust in Christ today. And if you have believed in Jesus, then, brothers and sisters, Let's get back out on the field. Let's labor for the kingdom. Let's press onward and following our king. Let's get the gospel to every nation. And then the end will come. So until Christ returns, church, stay in the game. Let's stay in the game for the glory of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. For your love and mercy and grace in our lives. Thank you for a passage like Genesis 36. That helps us remind us that you know all of these people. All these names that we mentioned and read. You know them. Father, and all the people across this world, you know them. Father, you have a plan. Your plan is that the nations would hear the gospel. And that many would believe Turn from their sin and trust in Christ. God, help us to be encouraged today. Help us to stay in the game. By your strength, by your grace. Help us. Father. The nations need to know. And we're the ones that you called to tell. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.